Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. So happy to look at, you know, Zach and I. They, they... <laughs> of course, I would just pale in comparison anyway. No, Why sure, bother I'm, to no, try? I'm sure, I'm sure you would improve the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the aesthetics of our show compared to us two. But, uh, I've, got, I've got some cows behind me, as you can yeah, see. I'm well, sitting in the middle of the field with these frozen cows. Just put a picture of a cow up where my face should be. It's all good. <laughs> there you go. Hey, Tara, thank you for coming on. Zach's already recording, so just so you know. Um, Tell us a little quick background about you for people that might not have known your story. Because I've, I've kind of just seen a little bit of your stuff on Instagram. A lot of people have sort of, they kind of directed me your way, you know. And so I, I, I'd be interested to hear more about your background myself. So if you don't mind sharing that with our audience. Yeah. Um, so I'm a retired nutritionist. I spe- specialized in sports nutrition when I did it. I've raised, my husband and I have raised three kids together uh, on, uh, they're in their our oldest is 27 and then our youngest is going to be 17 in a couple months so pretty much grown and we raise them on sort of traditional foods animal food centered diets um, without grains and um, now for the last 10 years we've had our own small farm homestead and um, just sort of sharing the gospel of the nutrition of animal foods with people I guess is what I'm doing. And if I'm not mistaken, is your husband a physician as well? Yeah, he's an emergency room physician. Yeah, that's what I thought. And so, and how many kids do you, you have three kids? How old are they? Yeah, our oldest, we have three daughters. Our oldest is 27, and then our middle daughter's going to be 23 in a month, and our youngest is just about 17. Okay, so they're almost all grown. Yeah, yeah. And they, and they, uh, they, they survived despite having been being forced to eat <laughs> horrible products like meat and eggs and milk and that sort of stuff, huh? They did. And like, I think that's one of the things that I try to tell parents now too, like, especially with young kids, because you know, there's that whole thing that if you feed your kids, these foods that they're going to, you know, turn into these teenagers that rebel, and you know, they'll never come back to real food again. And I just, that's just bullshit. Like, that's not the way it has worked for us. I don't think there's anything miraculously different about my kids. in, In all of their cases, and what I tell people all the time is I think that, you know, they grow up knowing what it feels to have a clear mind and a strong functioning body. And that when they're teenagers and they go to their friends and they eat pizza and garbage and stuff like that, they know that something's off. They know that this isn't the right way their body's supposed to feel. And in every, every case with like our daughters, that's exactly what happened. You know, our, our oldest daughter now, like she hunts, she fishes, she wakes up at 4.30 in the morning in Vancouver um, and drives outside of the city to go salmon fishing when it's in season. Like, you know, they, they recognize that they need these animal foods, these good fats in their diet, and they continue to do that on their own without any help from us. So um, I think that's just sort of a fallacy to keep people in, in the norm of, or, you know, what is norm in, in our dysfunctional culture of eating these fake foods and then thinking that it, you're somehow normal because you're part of that scene but hey Tara, I'm, I, I forgot to ask where you're located exactly I'm, 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 I'm detecting a bit of a northern accent are you up from are, are you up in Canada or, or where do you live right now yeah I live uh, I'm from Manitoba uh, Canada originally and uh, we live in Ontario Canada right now yeah okay I suspected as much you know I was kind of getting the uh <laughs> Bob and Doug McKenzie's oh. busting out of the A's too much. Yeah, Tara. Oh. <laughs> Did you, what you said was uh, really interesting because like we've talked about that quite a bit on this podcast, just this idea of kind of normalizing poor nutrition. And, you know, so sometimes when I think people who have kind of gone down the rabbit hole of, I want to try to take care of myself with the focal point being like food first, 
they, they talk in a language that is almost undecipherable to the person who's just eating junk food most of their lives because they don't have this concept of what feeling good actually feels like because they've more or less normalized what it feels like to kind of exist off of a very subpar nutritional program. And I think it gets even more interesting as we go get further and further in kind of modern society where, you know, now even the kids are there, they have hyper availability of some of these like poor food choices, whereas in the past, they were more or less kind of held held to whatever their parents were going to give them, whereas now they have, you know, vending machines and convenience stores all over the place, and they have access to these sort of things and can kind of go outside, uh, even, even a, a fairly decent diet if they choose to. And uh, so your children probably actually have not only a great experience, but a very unique experience compared to maybe some of their peers. Uh, do they, do they talk to you a lot about that? Just like kind of what their friends are doing or maybe why their friends are doing something differently. Cause I can't imagine your daughter has a lot of friends who are also, or maybe I'm wrong, but that are hunting and, <laughs> and maybe eating the way she is. Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. And I think because of the ages, I think maybe if you asked me this question in 10, 15 years, I'd have more physical things that they'd be seeing with their friends. But right now, it's a really, uh, we talk a lot about how amongst their friend groups, there's a lot of mental health stuff going on. There's a lot of, um, you know, kids that are, well, I'm saying kids, but young adults that are, you know, have, are on all these anti-anxiety medications or antidepressants, these sort of like things that they've been on since they were teenagers and never ever associating it with diet. In fact, sort of being poo-pooed by, you know, any health professional that's helped them along the way. So I know in the case of my uh, eldest daughter, um, she's uh, friends with this young woman that's on four different types of sort of anti-anxiety, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder type medications, antidepressants. And um, she, um, her doctors told her that because she's been on them since she was, you know, 12, 13 years old, um, that this was just sort of what she needed to normalize life. She, she just couldn't, she had no confidence in her ability to just sort of take on life without these types of things, these medications. And um, in the last while, my daughter's been slowly chipping away at her sugar addiction and, you know, explaining that no pasta is actually sugar and really basic, basic things because no one ever told her and no one ever associated these things with that. But um, she's uh, been starting to eat more animal products, animal fats. But the amazing thing is that she's gotten her medications down to nothing for the first time in her adult life. And um, my daughter was telling me a few weeks ago, maybe it was just over a month ago now that um, her friend was saying to her, that she actually went out and she she had gone somewhere just for uh, some sort of mundane task she had to do and she felt happy. And she said, it's not that I am so scared of feeling sad, but I was like, what is this feeling that I'm having? Because she was so used to being dulled, just completely dulled and almost a life of monochromatic, you know, monochromatic life. And, and um, ever since then, she's, it's just been more and more that she's, you know, getting these emotions and starting to get back in touch with her for the first time. And that's just, that's not even, you know, just animal foods. It's just bringing those foods back into her diet that have been, you know, have never really been part of her diet and taking out the sugars just slowly bit by bit. And um, I mean, for her, it's, a, it's miraculous, right? Because this is not something that she ever even thought she was capable of of achieving but um that's just one story but i mean there's there's other you know it's it's uh, like my oldest daughter was telling me as well that you know she like she doesn't like to drink because she says it makes her feel like she can feel it for the next few days when she drinks but she likes her social group and she likes to be a part of that so it's always sort of navigating these these situations, you know, when everyone goes out for pizza, if she eats pizza, she's going to feel like crap and she doesn't even want the pizza, you know, she just, so she eats before she goes somewhere. But I'll say like, it really has built resilience in them. Maybe that's the pro of everything that they are really resilient, self-confident people where it's like, no, nah, I don't want that. And if it's, you know, it bothers you, the problem's on you. It's not on me. And they, they really authentically sort of navigate the world in that way. Maybe they're just used to being the freaks. I don't know, but that's sort of, <laughs> that's how it's gone. 
Let me let me ask you, um, and, and you know, certainly, uh, I mean, you made this comment about a lot of people don't think that diet has to do with mental health. I mean, I think that's absurd. We had a great podcast with Dr. Chris Palmer from Harvard the other day talking just about that very subject and how much diet does impact our mental health. And so that's an important uh, concept. But let me let me talk more about your story because you, you, you mentioned you were a nutritionist and then you guys decided, and your husband's a physician, you guys decided to buy or, or, or take a homestead farm. What was, what, 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 went into that decision and what's been, what has you, have you regretted that decision or what's been the, uh, uh, the story behind that? Yeah, I, uh, well, I, when I was little, I, I grew up on, we grew up on a corner that was severed off my grandparents' farm in Manitoba. So I think that just sort of implanted those ideas of wanting to be connected to the land and farms like that. But I, and so that was something my husband spent, uh, 24 years in the military so we were always moving from place to place all over Canada so um, I it was just something that we were waiting to get our final postings where we could actually go ahead and do that so that's it, it was always in the back of my mind and during that time I, I would volunteer and apprentice on other farms but ultimately I think um, it really is just that I wanted to absolutely control the food that that we ate to control uh, how we ate it, how it was butchered. Like we harvest all of our own animals ourselves. Um, that was just stuff that I wanted to take the responsibility on for and make it mine and, and be able to uh, use that whole animal in the way I wanted to. We learned how to butcher and do all that stuff too. So um, yeah, I just think those were just, uh, and no, I haven't regretted it at all. It's a lot of work, but, but, uh, but it's been worth it all. You guys, uh, you guys are a small farm. Uh, you know, my understanding is you sort of practice what many people would consider uh, um, a sustainable or regenerative type of, of uh, farming. What was, uh, well, tell, tell, me, tell us a little bit about the details of how you guys farm, because I think some people find that interesting. Yeah, we have, um, we um, bought our first farm. It was a couple hundred acres and we sold grass-fed beef. And then we moved to, uh, we downsized and moved to this farm, which is just over a hundred acres. And uh, we live in a part of Ontario that's right on the Canadian Shield. So it's quite rocky and quite um, not conducive to grains or any other type of mass farming like that. So we basically farm within what, what is here uh, naturally. So we have like um, wetlands, we have hilly, huge granite outcroppings, we have forests around us. And so we practice silvopasture, which is just basically pasturing the animals in the forest, moving them every day. Um, so, you know, our land, and I, I think that people don't quite get this too, when they talk about sort of arable land is there's a ton of land around me and none of it looks like, anything you would see that could grow some vast monocrop of monocrop of like soy or did I say monocrop because maybe I'm going to start using that monocrop term instead of <laughs> but um like you know of soy and corn and stuff like that it just it can't happen here you would have to literally demolish all of what's here all the birds all the wildlife you'd have to take out all the forests you'd have to do serious drainage all these sorts of things and um you know, I guess then you could maybe grow a little bit of food. But instead, we leave what's here. We have incredible biodiversity. We have these really vibrant ecosystems that stay, you know, we're surrounded by um, coyotes and bears and fishers and beavers and um, all of these animals that are, um, our animals are also a part of. And everything can like survive and intermingle and, and be okay because there's like all these species of life that are just left to be here and we kind of fit ourselves into the crevices of what nature is trying to do. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. 
They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Yeah, Terry, you know, that's an interesting topic too. And I think like just as a whole, it's a tough conversation to have in general because for one, you were kind of swinging the paradigm enough, although it is essentially going back to what we would have done historically from a farming standpoint. But, you know, people are so, at least in the first world country, so aware of just kind of what we're, what we've been doing now for the past few decades that, you know, moving back to kind of these small scale family farm type regenerative agriculture things is, is kind of a leap for them. But on top of that, then, you know, you have a lot of these, uh, as best as I can gather at this point, talking points of just like, well, you know, there's not enough land for us to do a regenerative process to feed the planet, so to speak. So we need to focus on, you know, crops or something like that to feed the world population, which in my opinion is essentially saying, okay, so we're going to kick the ball down the road and then hopefully figure something out by the time we get down there and that exhausts itself. But to take a step back into the regenerative stuff, maybe you know more than I do about this specific topic. And if not, we don't have to dive into it too deeply, but uh, I'm still trying to find like good information that would be indicative of whether a regenerative type of process is scalable in a large frame in, in the sense that like, do we even know like what we could convert into a, a regenerative type of scenario if we actually started looking at the, some of these environments that maybe at first glance we're, we would dismiss? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that Zach. Like I know here where I am, it wouldn't even be classified as agricultural land, like in the land surveys. Um, and yet when I look at pictures from 150 years ago or a hundred years ago, we have a flyby picture. They used to come and take pictures of the, the farms and I can see his cattle on this land and what, how he had the pastures divided and stuff like that. So I think there's a lot more potential when we start looking outside of the paradigm we're in like this whole sort of like, you know, these small farms can't feed everybody. Well, they're not supposed to like small farms are supposed to feed their communities. Mm -hmm. And then there's different areas of land, like, um, you know, like just thinking here in Canada, like Alberta and Saskatchewan with their prairie grasslands, you know, this is where the Buffalo roamed. I mean, my goodness, like I have friends that are out there that are cattle ranchers that are on 7,000, 10,000 acres of native prairie uh, grasslands that have never been plowed up, that are running hundreds or thousands of head of cattle that are moving through these areas and bison as well, actually farm bison, um, that, that, you know, you, we're talking about mass scale. Well, I think that's pretty big, <laughs> you know, like that's quite a few numbers. And, and I know like down in the States, I'm, I'm not sure where you're, grasslands reach from where to where but it's the same idea um, but I think that I think all of these things fit into a model like all these things feed into feeding ourselves more small farms more um, bigger farms that are sort of using the resources of these grasslands in these areas um, you know that that are there I think that we can I think that people kind of want to stay within the model that we're in and find solutions within it but I think it's pretty broken personally and I think that we can be a little bit more creative and and try and find you know if I just look around me where I am um, everybody has a parcel of land that's between 100 and 200 acres and if each one of those people were raising a few head of cattle and some like you know turkeys or ducks or whatever as well as the hunting that everybody does here as well I mean we could feed people for hundreds of kilometers around us so um yeah, I, I, I don't really like this idea of like feeding the world because then the, I guess the next question too is, well, what are we feeding them? You know, mm -hmm. what are we talking about that, yeah. that's feeding them? <laughs> yeah, it gets super complex then too. It's like, uh, you know, it becomes a regional question and then it becomes an ethical question of, well, if you live in a region that's more productive, is it your responsibility to also be providing for the region that's not productive? Or like it, it, it almost, it becomes really, um, it really becomes kind of goofy when you really get into the details of it. But, uh, you know, and I also think just 
maybe to tie it up a bit and then Sean, you can jump in if you want to add anything, but it's like you mentioned something too that I think often gets overlooked is like the hunting aspect of it. And I understand that hunting in its current modality is, is probably not scalable to the size that we could say, well, abandon animal agriculture and we're just going to feed the world by hunting practices either. But I just think these are also when you combined a lot of these pieces of puzzles, we can, we can eventually kind of get to a place where, where we can make something happen when we look at all our options as opposed to just trying to maximize one of them. And I think hunting and kind of opening our minds to like what constitutes human animal food would be a step. And then also just, I think one of the big things that I don't see get discussed nearly enough, and, and maybe I'm just ignorant to why this isn't getting discussed, but I look at waste as really another big mover in this conversation. Uh, you know, I've seen estimates where a lot of times like 40% of our food that is supposed to end up on our plate gets wasted before it gets there or just doesn't get eaten, gets thrown away. Mm-hmm. It's like, to me, if we're worried about the environmental impact of our, of our nutrition, we should first be looking at how much of that nutrition we're just throwing away <laughs> and mm-hmm. try to minimize that. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, for sure. I think I really like what you said too, about us, maybe it's a diversification of thought really. And maybe our imaginations a bit of how, how people can eat these sort of nutrient dense foods. And maybe it's not, I mean, I know someone who just relies on hunting um, and doesn't buy any of his meat and it's really a full-time job. You know, he's, he's like traveling places to go get his meat all over the place, um, which is, uh, you know, and his wife brings, brings home an income. But um, I think, I think that, I think that can be a piece of it too. And I think that um, it's, it's a challenging thing because we've gotten so far away from our food culture and we've gotten, you know, it used to be that like your dad would, would take you out and teach you how to hunt and you'd have Mm -hmm. your little piece of nature and you go out there and we've sort of lost that tradition. And I think that, um, I think it, it's a bit harder to claim that back. We have to, to, to try and make that a part of our lives. We have to kind of come up with these creative solutions and find people that are willing to teach us and guide us to do these things. But it is doable. It's just not as easy and natural as, as and it's, you know, it's set up so it's not, of course. You know, it's set up so the grocery store is easy and um, convenient and, and the rest of the stuff that really is what's natural and has been happening with humanity since the dawn of time is the stuff that takes a lot of work to make happen now it's upside down yeah I mean I, I think it's you know obviously impractical to think the whole world can hunt to, 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 to feed us I mean there's, there's not enough wild animals for us to do that we'd quickly run through the deer and elk population if we all decided to do that. But uh, <laughs> hey, let me ask you, you know, uh, this is something that I know you at least shared post on. I don't know if you personally experienced this, but it seems like, uh, you know, there's been a lot of activism directed at farms and particularly they seem to single out these small farms and often farmers that are, you know, I, you know, sort of doing it the right way. And they're going after farms that are practicing regenerative type techniques and, 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 you know, I mean, you can speak for yourself as to, you know, how much uh, you care about your animals. I mean, the, the, the impression out there is, you know, farmers are cruel and evil people and they spend their day kicking cows or something <laughs> ridiculous, but talk to me a little bit about the, the, the sort of the activism that's going out towards farmers. I know Canada, particularly Alberta is sort of pushing back on that. I'm not sure what it's like, you know, where you are and I, I think you said Manitoba, but, let me let me hear your your perspective on that that those issues i guess we're just low-hanging fruit you know nobody's um we're something that someone can sit on a screen and point a finger at and feel like they've you know done their good deed for the day but yeah that's that's uh just ridiculous um disconnected really ignorant to just the natural cycles of life um get these comments that are just really um out there uh really mentally unstable to be honest um and i really think um you know i i know i had a comment um from rob wolf a couple weeks ago where he was telling a story of being friends with this uh, vegan activist in california i think it was that was quite sort of high up in the vegan echelon and had he had told rob that you know rob said why go after the farmers you know they're the the farmers that are trying to do things right, why not make them allies? And he said, because uh, animals still has to die. And I think 
fundamentally, this is where every, what everything boils down to is that there's this absolute fear and um, uh, just misunderstanding of death, almost as if, you know, it's a sentient being is going to die, but, you know, we're all sentient beings, we're all gonna die. That's, it's, it's not, it's sort of their big trump card that, that everything boils down to, no matter what you say, how the animal was raised, how well it was treated, that what it's going to do for the body is that that animal's going to die. And it's just, to me, a kindergarten response to something, a kindergarten response to the understanding of the cycles and the rules of the natural world and a complete disconnect from the natural world. And this is what I try and talk to and speak of often, not because I you know, want to talk about death all the time, but because I want to normalize something that they've really perverted um, as if this is, you know, there, if, if something has to die, then anything else, none of the other stuff that comes before it matters and how that food nourishes us doesn't matter. Um, is just, uh, it, it's a, it's a dysfunction it's a, of, of maturity. It's a dysfunction of development of the human being's understanding of, of their place and our place in the natural world. And I think that we should still have responsibility for animals. I think that we should care for animals. I think we owe them that because um, they do nourish us, but they are nourishing us. And um, to suggest that, um, you know, that there's other foods that can be substituted that doesn't call that de cause death. I mean, it's just, it's, it's asinine. It's a complete misunderstanding of the natural world. For me to grow a bunch of soy where I live, I would have to kill every natural uh, living thing where I live. I'd have to kill all the trees, all the wildlife, all the birds, all the, the coyotes, the deer, the bears, everything would have to go so that I could grow that one food. And then um, you know, at harvest time, I mean, I've been there at harvest time, I see all the dead bunnies and the decapitated groundhogs and everything that's left on the soil, like, to pretend, to pretend that you're not involved in that in some way, and then point the finger at somebody else just seems to me, one of the uh, lowest, most irresponsible ways to approach a topic, instead of just having conversations, um, it's sort of more this hit and run this spread some hate and then run away behind a private account and be anonymous um you know but it, it got to the point where um i just had to stop reading my direct messages because i just couldn't you know every time i would because i put a setting on my instagram where they couldn't put a comment unless they followed me and some people will still go ahead and follow me and then put something hateful but by and large they just went to direct messages to send me things and it just got to the point where I, you know, had to steal myself just to open the direct messages. Yeah, you know, I'm, that's unfortunate. But like, you know, the thing I find really interesting about that topic as a whole is if you choose to get in kind of a debate about some of this stuff, it all it, it usually gets to kind of what we were talking about before where the the end game seems to be, well, how are we going to feed the planet on animal products or how are we going to feed the you know, it's like this is extrapolation forward to feeding the planet. But then when we get back to the ethical side of things about animal deaths based on your food choices, well, we're also not going to feed the planet without animal death if we're going to go with a monocropping system to try to feed the, feed the planet on a plant-based model. So it's like, which one do you want? Um, you know, it's, it, but it, it seems like when you get in, for me personally, like, I mean, I know enough vegans that I trust that if I really have a question about kind of like, if I want to have a straight shot answer, I'll just ask them as opposed to like, you know, go on to Twitter and just like try to pick a fight or something with, um, or maybe not pick a fight, but even get in a dialogue with someone who I don't know what their motive is necessarily. But uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I think that's like you, we, we often have these conversations and we're framing them in such different ways that if you go with one of the ways you get to this kind of almost dead end, but if you frame it another way, it contradicts the other framing and it kind of ends up at a dead end as well. And we ultimately end up just getting in these little like arguments about your individual lifestyle is not sustainable versus this other person's individual lifestyle is not sustainable. And then we don't actually have any wide scale changes that are actually going to be meaningful in any way. Mm -hmm. 
I, and it's unfortunate because I mean, you do want to have some conversations and I mean, I'm happy to have a mutually respectful conversation, but I don't know that I, maybe it's just where I'm at. Maybe it's because I'm a farm on Instagram. Um, but I, I've just not been able to do that. And I just don't have time for it, to be honest. I just, I have zero interest in defending something that, that when somebody just doesn't want to hear anything, they just want to argue a point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of Instagram and, and what is the name? Cause it's like slow down farm. I think slow down. What, is, what do you call it? I can't remember. Yeah, <laughs> Slow down farmstead. Slow, slow down farmstead. I guess that's yeah. just kind of like, go back to taking to taking it easy a little bit i guess but yeah. um do you now let's talk a little bit because my understanding your personal diet you've gone more to a meat-based diet am i mistaken in that or is that what i've seen no that's what i've done yeah yeah i was uh i've had lyme disease for 10 years now so i've you know pumped tens of thousands of dollars um into every professional and treatment there is and uh you know i just want to say too like i wasn't eating a standard american diet i was eating the way that i eat now but i still was eating vegetables and seasonal fruit and uh i think last year i uh, i was down to about 10 grams of carbohydrates a day so really low um but i you know started hearing stories of people healing by completely taking out that last little bit and i thought nah it's not gonna I mean, I just couldn't see that last little bit making much of a difference, but it made an amazing difference. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, I, you know, within a couple months I had profound energy and I had been constantly fatigued. Everything I did was like a slog. I had profound energy. My brain cleared up my brain fog. And, but most miraculously is just, I had no pain. I mean, we're talking 10 years of like just, constant bone pain to not to no pain um which still amazes me so i eat you know the foods that we grow so i eat nose to tail i eat um you know a lot of funky stuff that's that we have but um only animal products right now and um i'm thriving like i haven't in in a decade so yeah it's uh it's a really happy wonderful thing <laughs> I'm totally shocked. I've never heard that before. <laughs> no, I know. What would compel somebody to do that? No, I'm just kidding. You know, we, I've seen that now doing this for several years now. I've seen literally thousands of stories, very similar to yours. And it's, it is quite intriguing. So let me ask you, because obviously this sort of, you know, well, maybe not so much because you're in Canada and you're probably, you know, obviously there's, there's native populations that largely thrived on largely animal-based diets. And so maybe it's not so foreign you but i mean you as as a nutritionist i assume you're conventionally trained that's you you wouldn't have gotten that recommendation in your nutrition training and then your husband as a conventionally trained md would also have been sort of not sort of trained that way like i wasn't um what what has he thought about that and what is what what does it do to your nutritionist brain to think about the fact that wait a minute i'm doing the best and thriving the most ever in my life without plants without those magical phytonutrients without all that you know essential fiber that we're told we're supposed to have how, how do you how do you reconcile that well um when we raised our kids we did raise them on a sort of western a price style diet without the grains so he was pretty used to eating pretty heavy animal and he's uh he years ago was the canadian natural bodybuilding champ so he's he's really into fitness and stuff and he ate that that way too and just saw it in his body you know he's not going to eat different than we fed the kids we were a family and so he ate that way too um so he ate pretty low carbohydrate as well and honestly he just defaults to me because he doesn't know squat about nutrition to, and he'll he'd be the first to tell you that <laughs> like you know he he was trained you know he got three hours or something like that in his medical training about nutrition and so when i um when i started dropping those last last 10 grams of veggies and stuff uh, he just did it with me. I mean, I'm the one who cooks, so it was pretty easy for him to just, he just did it with me and um, he really liked it too. And so he, that's just what he does too. And, uh, you know, it's pretty interesting because he actually, he teaches as well. Um, he teaches first responders on uh, tactical uh, resuscitation. And um, a lot of these guys that are coming in and doing these classes with him, are all eating uh the guy that leaves up with him eats you know one giant steak a day 
Um, and so a lot of them more and more are getting into, you know, eating more and more animal products, less of the vegetables eating sort of one meal a day or, you know, and, and just finding amazing results. So it's really interesting that in that world and the circles he's moving in that um, he's seeing that more and more as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty excited. We've got, you know, like I said, there's gonna be a major study we're gonna embark on later this year, a big, big university, big researcher, big name researcher, which I'm not yet at liberty to say, but <laughs> it's gonna be happening later this year. And uh, so that's, that's pretty exciting. Um, and, you know, and I've seen pictures of Osmia. He's pretty, he's pretty solid. He looks like he's in good shape, man. He looks pretty jacked. So I'm, I'm, I'm good, glad to see more meat eaters uh, stepping up and particularly physicians that are, that are kind of, uh, uh, I guess, being a, uh, you know, a source of information or a source of inspiration and so on. Um, do you, do your, uh, does anybody you uh, sort of live with, I mean, I guess you're in a farm, maybe you don't have that many neighbors or I don't know how, many, how often you run into people are they giving you a hard time about your your food choices uh no i think they give me a harder time if i was a vegetarian i mean just where we live the kids get a week off for hunting week you know it's just it's part of you know think they they think that a gal's got a pretty robust appetite when she sits down to eat a steak so no it's just a different type of a different approach here and um you know like what you were just saying, I was going to say something too, just as far as my husband being a physician is that it's really too bad that he can't help people with nutrition stuff, you know, like the amount of young people that come into the ER um, on these medications that are living junk food diets or, you know, people that are coming in with out of control here to woman with a sugar of 60 uh, the other day, um, but this is the Canadian, so I'm not sure what the, what the, but, you know, just out of control diabetes and, and all these other things, but, you know, he has to operate within the guidelines, you know, or get risk getting sued. And so these guidelines have very strict mandates of what he's allowed to say and what he's allowed to offer. And none of that's nutrition stuff. So it's really this sort of tightly controlled in, environment of what he's allowed to do and say, um, it's part of the reason that he went into emergency medicine instead of family medicine um, just so that he could deal with more of those acute things instead of these long-standing conditions. But um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, I think that we, um, you know, need to be able to share these stories a little more openly. Um, maybe, maybe not within the, within the tight confines of the, of the medical world, but outside of that as well is, you know, people telling, people their stories and of how they're healing to me is the most profound and powerful way for us to sort of spread this spread this message yeah i agree i mean i think it's it's the, the stories are very compelling and like your husband i went into a field an orthopedic surgical field because i didn't want to deal with the chronic disease because i just felt that you know back then i felt like you know it's just hopeless i mean no one listens to you on your nutrition device even if you gave it and, and it's just you know, it's, it's just chronic disease that never gets better. And, and now that I've kind of seen uh, that nutrition has a humongous role in lifestyle in general, particularly the nutritional standpoint or part of it, um, it's just, it's very eye-opening and, and it's, and it's given me a little bit of hope and it, and it may not be through the uh, modern medical system that we address that, at least not the Western medical system, because I think it has got so many, you know, it's, it's so inextricably married to the pharmaceutical industry that, uh, I think it's very hard to, 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 like I said, do those nutritional lifestyle things within that system. It's just not reimbursed. It's not at all promoted. It's, it's sort of a very much lip service. You know, we give lip service to prevention. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you uh, as far as, um, so you said you've, you've been on this sort of meat-based diet now for, I assume, a, a year or, plus or more. Yeah. What, what, was, uh, what was it like when you transitioned over and, and what, uh, you know, what, what, what sort of benefits have you seen uh, other than, uh, well, I mean, with your Lyme disease, and then I guess you have your own physician, have they commented on, on any improvements? Um, well, one of the big things was my, uh, for 10 years, my oxalates were totally out of control. I think they were at 678 
and again, this is Canadian like values, so I'm not sure how it translates. They were off the charts, my 24 hour oxalates that we were monitoring because I had chronic skin issues where my skin literally felt like there was fiberglass in it. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> worked with fiberglass, but it's that sort of feeling. And um, that just completely went away. It just completely went away. My oxalates totally normalized and my skin after 10 years of just this constant feeling like there's sand or something under my skin went away. Um, but uh, my doctor, he's a medical doctor uh, here in Ontario and uh, he has a lot of autistic and uh, autistic children and Lyme disease patients, sort of the, the group that no other doctor really wants to deal with. And um, so he, uh, I told him that I was just going to drop the rest of the vegetables as an experiment. He's just a wonderful, compassionate man, um, really open-minded. He said, well, let's see what happens. And every time I see him, he said, you are aging in reverse. What is going on? What are you doing? And so he has since uh, su suggested to a couple of his other patients that they, he won't tell them to do it, you know, because he still has to, but he's told them what I've done and given them some resources to see if it's something that they want to do as well. So um, yeah, uh, it's uh, for him, he's just really intrigued. His son, actually, his 20 year old son is actually on an all meat based diet now as well for some chronic conditions he had. So I think these things are like sort of what spreads the good word, you know, is that it's, it seems so uh, strange and odd to people when you say it initially and I still kind of feel like oh, is this person worth getting into this conversation over um, but I think that more and more um, you know uh, more and more people are hearing about it more and more people are talking about it and um, I think that I know for me I had heard and been recommended everything under the sun for for treating Lyme disease and you know, I drove to the States, we were driving to a doctor in the States over the border and spending thousands and thousands of dollars on all these things that didn't do anything. Um, so instead of adding a bunch of stuff and layering a bunch of stuff on top of an illness, we stripped everything back and just went to these really nourishing foods. And, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, I, for whatever reason, that's the thing that has worked for me. So, um, you know, I have a compromised gut from my childhood. And so maybe all these things paint this picture, but whatever it is, I'm um, just thriving right now. And I'm, I'm really happy to be able to eat these, these foods because they're the most delicious foods there are. It's not as if it's a sacrifice, like to eat these foods, it's like decadence and just nourishing and, and, and uh, you know, my, my family, I mean, if I, if my daughter wants to put some carrots on the side of her plate, then, you know, go for it. It's really not going to hurt her. But um, for me, for where I'm at, it's exactly where I want to be. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by X3 Bar. The X3 Bar puts a new spin on banded workouts. Historically, bands have been supplementary or inadequate for true heavy lifting. Dr. Jakish has brought a product to market that has the convenience of bands, but with the option to provide the resistance of heavy free weights. The X3 bar has four custom bands, with the thickest one being engineered to sport over 500 pounds of resistance. The bar is designed to rotate as you move through the full range of motion. All this is anchored to the ground on a small standing plank. The design allows progressive resistance throughout the lift, which more evenly distributes the lift's difficulty through the full range of motion. Personally, I've been using this both at home and when traveling on the road. It fits nicely into a rolling duffel and takes just a few seconds to set up. Sean has been using it for both core lifts and supplementary lifts. Dr. Jakish includes a training plan along with a detailed description of how to use the X3 bar for quick full body workouts. For a deep dive into the science, check out our episode 131 with Dr. Jakish. He also has loads of information on his website, which is x3bar.com. That's the letter X number three bar.com. If interested in purchasing an X3 bar, take advantage of our promo code 50X3 for $50 off your purchase. Link and code can be found in the show notes. Now back to the show.
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a you know just something I've seen over and over again, and I think it's 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 just great to be able to see more and more people doing this. Let me ask you about so back to your farm. What do you guys actually raise there? What kind of animals do you have? What kind of crops do you guys produce? Yeah, we don't grow any crops at all. We have uh, grass-fed beef and grass-fed dairy. We don't give our dairy cows any grain. Um, and we have uh, ducks, geese, turkeys, chicken, and meat rabbits, actually. And then we also hunt on our land. We hunt um, deer and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully a bear this year. So we'll see how that goes. Do you have to get a tag for the bear? Or? Yeah, I did. I got one though, but I just, I've been, I've been baiting the bear, but I don't, uh, with apples that we have on the farm. So we'll see. There's a lot of <laughs> bears here. We'll see. <laughs> it, it is funny to look at like different regions and what animals are, are huntable year round versus like you need to get a tag and your likelihood of getting one is like every seven years or something like that. Uh, just in general, I've, I, I used to hunt when I was younger and living in Wisconsin, which is a little closer to where you're at. Now I'm down in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm looking to get back into it because I have a friend now who's hunts around here. So it, it, it's just kind of funny to me coming from the Wisconsin perspective of like what is, what is huntable, so to speak, versus mm -hmm. down here where, you know, the invasive species are like the coyotes and the javelinas and that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, do people hunt coyotes there? Yeah, you know, I've, I probably know just enough to be dangerous at this point in terms of all the ins and outs of hunting in Arizona, but uh, I'm pretty sure coyotes are year round because they tend to, uh, they tend to reproduce a lot quicker, even especially when they're under pressure, I think. So mm -hmm. it's really hard to kind of keep them at it, or it's, it's really hard to overhunt them, I guess, is maybe the way to say it. Yeah. Yeah, we have a coyote problem here. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we just yeah, they if they get too close to the to the barnyard, we just we just have to shoot them. They can be problematic here. That's actually an interesting topic too because um, you know, one thing I think about when we think of some of these like holistic or regenerative uh type farm setups is you are kind of welp welcoming back in everything. So at a certain point you're going to welcome in some of the natural predators. And um, depending on how I guess you look at it, we're, we're more or less assuming, I think, in modern society that the humans are kind of taking the role of that predator, but just doing it in a little different way. Uh, what do you do maybe to manage that? Or do you just, to a certain degree, let it run its course? Yeah, we try to let it run its course, honestly, as much as possible. Like if the, the coyotes are like, you know, the other night they were coming up to the yard and we could hear them and we went out and we were in the bush, maybe just 50 meters from the barn. There was 11 eyes staring back at us with the <laughs> flashlight. They were right there. But, you know, they, they turned and hightailed it out of there. Like if they, you know, it's, we're fine. I don't care. They can be here too. It's just, you know, if they, if, you had one but we've been here for years and like same with the bear like this area is full of bears I've seen their scat and that's it you know I I've uh, I've not had any problems they're pretty I think as long as they have their space and you have yours you know they they, they really don't want anything to do with you I think when you start having constant predator pressure there's maybe a problem in the equilibrium of the air the land around you but we don't have a lot of encroachment out here like I'm not I'm an hour from the nearest town so um you know it's not there's plenty of space for them to go it's not like we're on the outside of a city where they're starting to you know move they're hungry or something and they're bothering us sure have you tried to eat a coyote yet yeah no <laughs> <laughs> no I don't I'm not that hungry Zach <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that the other day I was like you know just like how hungry would I have to be before I decided <laughs> to start hunting for the coyote for food but I mean they're they're it, it's 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 weird what makes it makes it go of it out here in the desert but you know one of the things I see more frequently are coyotes and uh, you know, sometimes I think they're trying to coax our dog into following them into their den or something like that, but, uh, um, they are out and about. That's for sure. I have our, one of our neighbors is a big fan of squirrel. And every time we go there, he gives us squirrel stew and I'm telling you, it is the most delicious meat. I don't know if it's like mm -hmm. what the squirrel are eating here. I don't know if I'd want to eat a city squirrel, but like out here, like it's a, 
pretty tasty meat actually. Yeah. I've actually eaten squirrel before too. It's been a long, I think I was in like, I think it was like 14. So it's been a long time, but in Wisconsin, the squirrel hunting season was year round on your property. So I had a buddy in, in middle school who had like 40 acres. So we would, we could go hunt on his land year round on, and we would go squirrel hunting when there was nothing else to, to hunt during the, during the year. And yeah, it's, it's one of those, those, it, that's what kind of gets me thinking about like, well, what else is actually probably really palatable if you cook it right? I mean, if squirrels yeah. are all right, then coyotes yeah. are probably okay too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And bear, like I've had bears that were like, you know, go, hanging out in a dump and I couldn't even eat the meat. It was so vile. Mm. And then I had bear that like, you know, comes from blueberries. here. Yeah, that, were, that was just scavenging in the wilds and it's just phenomenal, phenomenal meat. So yeah, I think that's true of a lot of these wild meats. Do you, do you sell, I mean, cause I don't, I mean, with just, you know, what five people, I mean, you probably produce more food or potentially produce more food than you can eat. I would imagine. Mm -hmm. um, do you, do you sell it to the public? We sell what we're doing. We used to, we used to do that, but now what we're doing is uh, when we moved here and we downsizes, I just sell live like heifers or dairy, dairy heifer replacements uh, because we did, do a lot of work to get like A2A2 genetics. I don't know if you know like about that milk and, and getting these old fashioned dairy genetics. It took us a long time. We went through over 20 dairy cows um, just trying to find a cow that could live without grain. Um, it was a big thing for the dairy cows. Uh, they're just, so uh, now we sort of sell the live animals and that's, that's where we get the bulk of our income is just selling the replacement animals. Um, because and then every now and then we will sell like once a year maybe one or two beef animals will sell um but the ones that we butcher ourselves that we shoot ourselves we can't legally sell that meat so we have to take anything we sell into the abattoir and then they would do it yeah i mean i think it's same in the in the u.s with with usda processing laws i mean it's very difficult to uh you know you, you can't go outside of a usda processor and, and, and with without mm -hmm significant exceptions i think you know some people can buy their animals like you're, you're doing tell, tell us a little bit about the, you know I'm, I'm familiar you know at least to some degree about the a2 stuff but for the people that don't know what that's about can you briefly give us a you know a couple minute discussion on a a2 dairy versus uh, the more ubiquitous a1 dairy and, and what what the difference is and, and why it may be important Mm -hmm. Yeah, so somewhere along the line, to just make it a really quick little story, somewhere along the line, there was a blip, all proteins in uh, the casein protein in, in milk used to be A2A2, which is just a variant they've, they've labeled A2A2. Um, and then somewhere along the line in the industrialization of milk, probably uh, somewhere when the Holstein was introduced, which is a really great big producer of milk, um, there was a A1 variant that was introduced into that protein. And there's a, actually quite a bit of science that's come out of India because they've really taken the bull by the horn sort of thing and, and tried to bring back their heritage animals, which were all heritage dairy animals, sorry, that were um, all A2A2 um, because they're starting to uh, look at the science behind this A1 causing a lot of problems in the human body. So things, you know, from inflammation and then the whole cascade of what inflammation causes in the body. And I know in um, India, they're like looking at sort of diabetes. I think maybe they have a bigger picture there than just their milk consumption, but they're looking at how that might play a role as well. Um, and as you know, Sean, I mean, inflammation plays a role in everything. So um, yeah, so um, there's been a, there's been a movement now to sort of, uh, try and get some of these cows uh, you can get your cows tested and I've done this for friends of ours as well it's just basically some hairs off the their tail head and you send it down to UC Davis and uh, they'll test to see if the cow is has this a1 variant or the a2 variant and um, it comes from both parents so it's either it can be a1 a1 it could be a1 a2 or then a2 a2 and even if they have a a1 a2 that's just it's not good enough because they still have that uh, that protein that can cause all those health issues. So uh, we did a lot of testing and work to make sure that our cows were A2A2. I had a lot of problems with dairy um, growing up and a lot of skin issues as a teenager. And um, I find that uh, with us, uh, I can consume raw 
A2A2 milk uh, without issue, but I, I have problems again, if I just try and have other milk, I just get, uh, you know, bloating and other issues and stuff. But that's uh, a pretty small part of our, our, our diets. It's not a huge part of our diet. We only milk in the summer, but um, I know now, I think in the States too, isn't it that you can actually buy 2A2 milk that's labeled, I think? Yeah. I yeah. I th it might depend on what state you're in, how you go about it. But I think as long as it's labeled that, you can you can find it. And I, I see it at the grocery store I go to. So, yeah, for what it's worth. But yeah, you know yeah. the raw milk and that sort of stuff is always interesting too. Because like, um, for me personally, like I had a similar situation where like dairy tended to just you know cause bloating and congestion for me if I'd have it like above like maybe a serving worth in the past. But then you know kind of going back to the root of it all and starting out with like some fermented dairy products and small amounts and raw dairy products and stuff like that it has uh, kind of allowed me to reintroduce that into my diet and um you know we had i think you're, you're probably familiar with dr bill schindler uh we had him on the podcast not too long ago and he was talking about that too where if you actually prepare your dairy uh in a fermented way you don't even necessarily have to have it like that all the time because like those bacteria that are in there can kind of stay around for a couple of days after you've used it. So he said, like, if I'm remembering correctly, he said like, he'll like someone could eat that version and then they could maybe even get like a conventional dairy, like cheese or something like that. And it wouldn't cause them problems if they had it in close enough proximity to the stuff that actually had the, the bacteria on it that they were looking for. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And that's what we, that's how we approach things when our kids were small too, before we were on a farm. I used to buy raw milk in these clandestine operations, you know, in church <laughs> parking lots and stuff. And uh, that's what we did. Like I, we, they would get sort of whole milk and I would culture it and make yogurt and kefir and stuff like that. And then they seemed to be fine with just straight milk in, in smaller doses, but it was always the cream kind of we were after, to be honest. But, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, I think that makes a lot of sense as far as giving your gut what it needs to deal with the other stuff that's not cultured. Yeah. And I think the other interesting too, is if you go down like the fermentation rabbit hole, like dairy is one of the easier things to ferment in terms of the timeline. Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah. It's quite easy. Cool. What, um, I guess, you know, I mean, you're, you're on social media, uh, that can be a, a double-edged sword. Um, what are you trying to, is there some kind of message you're trying to share out there with people for them to, uh, you know, I, I know I'm there. I'm out there to kind of tell people to eat meat and don't be silly. <laughs> but what is your, what is, what is, what is, what is the purpose of, of what you're trying to do at least, uh, by, you know, cause a lot of, a lot of ranchers and farmers, they, they don't have time for that. They could care less. They just want to do their business. And, but you know, there's some people that have, that have sort of, you know, for whatever reason, uh, are trying to share something. So what are, what are, what are you trying to let people know? Um, I think what I'm trying to, I had a really fabulous mentor when I was younger. He was a lifelong cattleman and he taught me so much about life and death and animal husbandry. And I think that he's, he's dead now. And uh, I think that I just kind of want to carry on what he taught me. And I just want to show people that, uh, you know, being a part of the cycle of nature and part of cycle of life includes includes death and that there, there's nothing deep and dark and sinister about that. This is just a, all part of this beautiful cycle. And there's, you know, there's gentleness and there's stuff that that we should still keep our eyes open to and be okay with it. I, I, I also want to just show like I, you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of experts that pop up all the time, you know, um, that, that have all the answers. And I don't think I have all the answers, but I did raise my kids eating these animal rich foods, animal rich diets. And they're, you know, young, healthy, strong girls with lean bodies and sharp minds. And they've gone into the world and they, you know, they're doing well and they're happy and, and well-adjusted people. And maybe that's a bit of encouragement to some parents that are just, you know, getting into this or that are, you know, maybe having to fight the school system or their, their in-laws who keep pumping the kids full of, you know, Rice Krispie squares or whatever. Um, 
I just, I just think that there's uh, maybe the world needs, um, maybe we need more people saying, yeah, I've been there and done it and, and it's, uh, it's going to be all right. And I don't know, maybe that's just what I, I feel like I have to offer in, in my little bits. Yeah, I mean, for people that haven't, uh, they should check out. And we'll, at the end, we'll get you to, to tell us your, your, your social media stuff. Um, one other thing, uh, you know, Canadian, uh, I guess last year, Canada came out with their new updated nutritional guidelines, uh, which is clearly biased towards plant-based stuff. What are your thoughts on that? And, and, you know, again, obviously you live in a particular sector, but how has that been received in Canada overall? Oh, brother. Um uh yeah you know i see it more and more because our uh, you know our public broadcaster uh cbc which is a really big presence in our media is more and more going into these plant-based type of this just parroting of of misinformation and so um it it's uh it's becoming ubiquitous and it's rampant and it's just i i try to speak out as much as i can i I know the they there was a nutritionist a month ago or so on the radio that was talking about if we want to stop the Amazonian rain fires, uh, rainforest, rainfires, the Amazonian rainforest fires that we should um, stop eating red meat. And it was just the most ludicrous um, commentary that I'd ever heard. And so I sort of called her to task on that on Instagram and it turned into a bit of a thing and I wrote some letters to the radio station and you know as I I think that we have to speak up I I really I really uh, respect that about you Sean is that how much you're just sort of willing to take this stuff on because so many people I you know think that complacency is keeping the peace and I think we've run out of time for that you know, I, I think that I think that time is over now that when you start seeing kids being told that if they are responsible citizens of the planet that they're going to be vegetarians or vegans, you know, this kind of uh, dogmatic misinformation that that if you're, uh, if you're a good citizen, you're going to do this. Um, it's, it's pretty scary stuff. And um, I think that people have to be vocal. I'm willing to take that on in my own little way, but I think everybody has to speak up uh, to that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, that's just, I guess that's just, you know, rather than thinking we're, we're keeping the peace, I really, really believe that silence is agreement. And, and I don't agree with this stuff. And I think that other people, I know a lot of people don't agree with it, but they think that they're you know, just by being quiet, it's like, well, you know, we can all think our things. And I just, uh, no, uh, I want my grandchildren to be able to eat these foods and to thrive and to be a fully realized human being, not to be some sort of little shell of a human being that's eating foods that the human biome and the human beings just never eaten before and not meant to eat, uh, to, 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 to thrive. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I, I think, and that is an important point. I, I think the complacency, complacency and, and passivity, we, we don't, we can't afford that. We really can't. And I mean, obviously, there's probably many, many more people that feel the way you and I do, at least regarding the, the, the sort of essentiality of, you know, animal products in the diets, uh, whether you're fully carnivorous or omnivore or even plant-based and, and you know still have some some meat or fish in there eggs in there um and, and so i think it's time for us to stand up and say look this is just insanity and we you know we're not going to be you know have massive policy decisions dictated by uh, an angry mob of, of a very small minority of people that are very vocal mm -hmm. absolutely Zach, any any other things you want to talk about? I'm I personally I haven't eaten breakfast yet. <laughs> I'm getting hungry. I'm gonna cook up a couple of steaks here in a minute. But as you uh, say, we would have never guessed what what's on your plate. <laughs> <laughs> might, might throw a couple of eggs in there today. I think my dad my dad's in town. You know, it's kind of funny. My dad he comes out and I haven't seen him in about a year or so, and he was out. Uh, he's 76. He's been doing this. He's about 90 percent carnivore. You know, he still has a little thing here and there, but he pretty much does that, and he's. Uh, at 76 still doing well you know and, and you you know we always hear about this these old old ranchers and farmers that are you know very robust and vigorous up into their 80s and 
still working hard. And, and that's, uh, unfortunately, that's becoming the exception rather than what it used to be, which was probably a lot more common than it is now. I mean, I see so many people, I mean, literally by age 40, they're already starting to look decrepit, which is just ridiculous. Oh, I, I totally agree. And I really wish I could get a school bus full of disbelievers and just bring them around to my neighbors. I mean, I am surrounded by these old guys that are just robust and healthy and beautiful skin, you know, that are well into their 80s and still moving their cattle and doing their farming. And, you know, they think that, you know, green stuff is rabbit food, <laughs> that a proper meal is, uh, you know, a big hunk of meat with maybe a little bit of potato on the side, like, you know, whatever. They, they, this is, uh, these guys, they're made of stuff that you, you know, it's, you see a 20 year old that has that kind of vitality and you're surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think there's a lot that can be learned by looking at the older population that is healthy. Uh, they have a, a long list of experiences to share, or maybe a short list of things that work. Yeah, true. Awesome. Well, Tara, yeah, thank you so much for taking some time and coming on the podcast. If you want to just quick share kind of with our audience where they can find you on website, social media, and that sort of thing, feel free to do that. And I'll also add those to the show notes. Um, yep. So I'm just on Instagram and it's a uh, slow down farmstead. And um, I have one of my followers has been kind enough to move things over onto a blog for me. So we're sort of transitioning that over so I can ramble on a bit longer. And that's just at slowdownfarmstead.com. Perfect. Awesome. Um, Sean, you got anything else? Not that I can think of. I'm just... Uh... You know, I just was looking at my email and I got a list for my kid. My kid goes to school and I have a cooking class and it's all about Mediterranean favorites and it's like couscous salad. And <laughs> Hopefully a, a big helping of salmon. Yeah, well, they, well, they do. They have marinated steak or tofu kebabs with veggies. So, I mean, it's kind of homemade pita bread, you know, falafel heroes. Anyway, chocolate salami, which sounds interesting. I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> Anyway, we got to keep fighting the good fight. Thank Tara for being one of the good guys or good gals, so to speak. And let's keep up. Let's keep up the work. I think we're making a difference. I honestly do. I think we're going to see, uh, you know, I think there's been a tipping point, at least the discussions being talked about and uh, uh, the more people that are up there and being vocal, the better. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me on. And, and thanks for taking this on in a really big way. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach, I think we're done, huh? Awesome, yep. All right. Hey, folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.